Welcome to Small World Big Problems, a podcast of the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. My name is Mahan Nama, and I will be interviewing Professor Vali Nasser on the changing security dynamics of the Middle East and the growing influence of China and Russia in the region, as well as the implications for the United States. To help make sense of all this, today's guest, Professor Vali Nasser, is the Majid Khadouri Professor of International Affairs and Middle East Studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a non-resident senior fellow at Atlantic Council South Asia Center. He also serves as the 8th Dean of Johns Hopkins Sites between 2012 and 2019 and served as senior advisor to U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Ambassador Richard Holbrook, between 2009 and 2011. Professor Nasser, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you. So I'd like to start our conversation about a recent and important event that happened in the region. On March 6, 2023, representatives from Iran and Saudi Arabia met in Beijing for discussions brokered by China. Four days later, the two regional rivals announced that they had decided to normalize relations. It was an announcement that was surprising as it was historic. Saudi Arabia and Iran had not had diplomatic relations since 2016 after Iranian protesters attacked the Saudi embassy in Tehran because the Saudis executed a well-known Shia cleric. The situation worsened as the two countries took opposite sides in the Yemen conflict with the Saudis backing the Yemeni government and the Iranians supporting the Houthi rebels. Tensions reached a peak in 2019 when the Houthis attacked Saudi oil facilities, causing a significant reduction in Saudi oil output. So can you start by talking about the agreement and discuss specifically what it entails? Yes, I mean, the agreement was longer in the coming, uh, at least for uh, uh, since 2021. Uh, the two sides had, had decided that they would explore opening relations. This came after, as you mentioned, great deal of escalation, which culminated in Iran attacking Saudi oil facility in, in Abrer, in eastern Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia, which was a direct attack on Saudi soil. Uh, the United States did not do anything about it. The Saudis felt a uh, great threat. Uh, the Iranians uh, thought that they had sent a powerful message to Saudi Arabia about the dangers of military escalation. I think both sides came to the conclusion that they should explore something else. So then the government of Iraq helped. Uh, then it had the prime minister, uh, Mustafa al-Qadimi who was well-known to both Riyadh and Tehran, and he uh, essentially uh, played the role of a mediator, inviting security officials from Iran and Saudi Arabia to engage in uh, dialogue. There were five rounds of talks. Of, there was no clear breakthrough, but during those five rounds of talks, I believe both sides put their demands and expectations on the table. There was some exploration of what might happen. The talks ended when the Iraqi government of Mustafa al-Qadimi fell from power. There were elections and then Iraq couldn't form a government for almost a year. At the end of the, the last session of those talks, 
Iran had agreed to to support a ceasefire in Yemen, in other words, to encourage the Houthis to observe a ceasefire in Yemen, which actually is still ongoing as we speak. And I think the two had sort of agreed upon what might be a framework, but there was no agreement. And this lasted until uh, when President Xi Jinping of China went to Saudi Arabia for an Arab-Chinese summit. There, I believe he met with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman around the issue of Iran. And I think that the Saudis understood that there could be no deal with Iran that without a middle person, a middle country that both sides respected and trusted. No Arab country, be it Oman or Qatar or Iraq, can play that role because both Iran and Saudi Arabia see themselves as bigger than those countries, and those countries really cannot provide guarantees to each side. The Iranians were afraid that the Saudis would take any kind of a progress in Yemen, put it in their pocket, and then remain hostile to Iran and not normalize relations. The Saudis thought that Iranians wanted access to Hajj and normalization, and once they get those, they will be unhelpful in Yemen. So the Saudis understood that, you know, Chinese have a special position in Iran. In fact, the more difficult part of Iran, the hardline Iranians are the ones that are most pro-Chinese and have the best relations with China. On the other hand, China is investing in Saudi Arabia, is a big energy customer. And so the Saudis spoke with the Chinese president. The Chinese president agreed to play the role of an intermediary. It is not true that either China or Iraq had really um, done anything more than media, anything more than uh, pro- provide a venue for these countries and then basically, in the case of China, serve as a guarantor. The negotiations, what each side really wants, what does it expect to get from the other side, in what time of a framework, who does what first, that was really negotiated between the Iranians and Saudis already in Baghdad. And then in China, before the agreement was, was unveiled, they had, there were five days of intense negotiations between the national security advisor of the two countries. And in a circumstance like this, if they are in a logjam, usually the host or the mediator may intervene. But I think uh, by and large, they, they had arrived in an agreement. So what came out of the Beijing agreement was that the Saudis wanted Iran to make sure that the Houthis would continue the ceasefire, would not attack Saudi Arabia with missiles, that they would agree to engage Saudi Arabia in a peace process, you know, as a political solution for Yemen, and that Iran would stop supplying the Houthis with with weapons. So all of Saudi's asks, if you would, were Yemen-focused. And the Iranians, in turn, at least to, to the extent that we know, wanted full normalization of relations. In other words, the opening of embassies, uh, Iranian access to Hajj pilgrimage, uh, and also that the Saudis would not block and may even facilitate greater degree of Iran's economic interaction with GCC countries. And there might have been other things, but this is as far as we know. This was basically the framework for the agreement in Beijing. And what are your thoughts on the deal and its potential impact on the region? What does it mean for Tehran and Riyadh to be closely aligned once again? Well, let me start by saying they're not closely aligned. This is basically, at best, is a ceasefire agreement. In other words, they both still 
have deep suspicions about each other. They have different agendas in the region, and they're coming from, as you mentioned, seven years of no relations with Iran having attacked Saudi oil facilities directly and supporting the war in Yemen. And then most recently, Saudi Arabia supported the protesters in Iran, which was a big threat to the Iranian government through a television channel in London and and support for uh, various anti-Islamic Republic political groups. So there is no love lost between them. But they basically have made the decision to lower the temperature, if you would, to to de-escalate tensions and to improve relations. So it is a big deal because we basically are stepping back from the edge of a war in the Persian Gulf. It's very important for the region because this rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia, or let's say this confrontation between Iran and Saudi Arabia for a number of years, had become the most significant dividing line in the region. It manifested itself in Lebanon, in Syria to some extent, in Iraq, in Yemen, across the Muslim world. It had been an animus for the Abraham Accords. It had basically created a situation where there could have been an imminent confrontation in the Persian Gulf with drastic impact on energy prices worldwide. So when we talk about Iran, who is Iran, who Iran might most likely have a confrontation in the region other than Israel, it always was Saudi Arabia. So if you would have this particular contentious situation being less contentious and at least be on a path towards some kind of an improvement, uh, starting with Yemen, etc. First of all, it improves the security climate in the Middle East. Secondly, it starts to address some of the conflicts in the region that currently cannot be addressed because of the fact that the main Actors in the region, Saudi Arabia or Iran, were not talking to each other and were competing with one another. This is not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. But the starting one is basically Yemen. If there is progress in Yemen, then, you know, you can imagine that then Iraq, Syria and and Lebanon could also join it. The second important consideration is that right at the time when Iran and Saudi Arabia decided to surprise the world with their agreement, Essentially, the United States and Israel were pushing for a definition of security in the Middle East, which was one that said Arabs plus Israel versus Iran. In other words, Iran is a big common threat to both Israel and the Persian Gulf Arab countries. And as a result, they should form a military security intelligence axis against Iran. So this agreement basically has changed that picture. That picture does not hold. Saudi Arabia and UAE that had normalized before Saudi Arabia are going in a different direction with Iran. They're not going in the direction of a very clear division along the region. And finally, the third is how did this happen? This is the very first big development in this region that does not include the United States. And in fact, the Saudi Arabia has broken, if you would, with what was the American vision and strategy, which was containment of Iran. And then he decided to do this with the help of China, which is also a very powerful signal given the kind of relationship the United States has with China at this point. So, Professor, in your opinion, why has this happened? Why has Saudi Arabia shifted its focus to the East? What does the kingdom seek to benefit from working with China? And at the same time, what does Iran seek from working with China? 
Well, I mean, for Iran, it's fairly simple. Iran uh, does not have relations with the United States, and recently its relationship with Europe has also got a lot worse. Uh, first, because during the protests, uh, you know, the human rights issues made it impossible for Iran and Europe to maintain the same kind of relationship they had before. And then Iran decided to support uh, Russia in the war in Ukraine, which the Europeans yeah. took very seriously. And then as of 2021, you know, Iran now has a presidential administration that from the very beginning did not believe that Iran should be looking to the West, but should be looking to the East. So uh, these two things have come together to push it in that direction. Uh, Iran does have a relationship of trust with China. So the Iranians necessarily were not looking for the Chinese to play this role. I think it was more the Saudis that did. But, but they do respect China. So, so China is as good an uh, influence on Tehran, and uh, the Iranians do trust the Chinese and their role. So that gives the, the agreement a certain degree of stability. Now, with Saudi Arabia, I, I think there are two things that are at play. One is that Saudi Arabia is trying to basically position itself as a global player that is not just a client of the United States. So we saw this when Saudi Arabia did not follow U.S.'s suggestion about oil prices, continued to work with Russia uh, in order to maintain a certain uh, production level and price of oil that was not what Europe and the United States wanted. Uh, would not condemn uh, Russia the way the United States wanted after the invasion of Ukraine, has maintained ties with Russia, which tells you that Saudi Arabia is just not following American lead automatically, robotically, and it wants to assert itself. Secondly, Saudi Arabia and China have had very tight relations, and it's getting bigger. Namely, Saudi Arabia is already probably China's largest oil supplier, and China is Saudi Arabia's perhaps largest oil customer. There is also increasing amount of money that goes from Saudi Arabia into China for investments and from China to Saudi Arabia for investments. And increasingly, Saudi Arabia sees China and Asia as, the, as a big economic partner and is part of Saudi Arabia's vision of being a global economic actor. And I would say, finally, Saudi Arabia has been somewhat disappointed with the United States. I mean, the U.S. says that it's still present in the Middle East, but in reality, the United States is no longer committed to the Middle East the way it was before. It's not committed to Saudi security the way it was before, and it's unwilling to really get into serious uh, pressuring of Iran in a way that could risk military conflict. And I think for Saudis, this was very clear when Iran attacked its oil facilities, and President Trump, who was such a friend of Saudi Arabia, didn't do anything about it, which meant that the Americans were not going to defend Saudi Arabia. And then America could not, once Saudi Arabia decided that it's in its interest to find a pathway of de-escalating tensions with Tehran, that the United States could not play that role. The U.S. is a force for escalation in the Middle East with Iran, not de-escalation. So if Saudi Arabia wanted genuinely to get to de-escalation, it couldn't do it with the U.S. It had to do it with somebody else. And Saudi Arabia wanted a partner, if you would, or a mediator whom Iran respected and would listen to. And that is either Russia or China. But Russia probably is too crafty and its motivations are less straightforward. 
and also right now is not in a position to play that role. So the Ch China was the natural, if you would, uh, partner for Saudi Arabia in this. But, you know, even though the choice of China here was very specific to the case of Iran, it nevertheless opens the door for a different kind of a relationship between Saudi Arabia and China. Do you believe that the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China poses a threat to the Saudi-U.S. relations? The Saudis don't think so. The Saudis want to say that, you know, we're now a big power, we're a great power, we, should, we want to have relations with everybody. We want to have relations with Russia, we want to have relations with China, and we want to have relations with you and with Europe. And these things are not mutually exclusive. But I think for the United States, it's a big adjustment because the U.S. was was used to a Saudi Arabia that it assumed is like 100% in its corner, that basically follows American policy uh, just because its military is, is completely American-based, that in other aspects of its foreign policy, economic policy, it basically would be part of American strategy. So this idea of a Saudi Arabia who says, yes, we may buy, want to buy these weapons from you or these Boeing aircraft, but we also want to buy these Chinese things and we're not going to follow your policies on Ukraine or on Iran and we're going to do things differently is a, is a change for Washington. In other words, uh, Saudis don't see a big change, if you would. They still see themselves as an ally of the U.S., but for the U.S., it's a new Saudi Arabia. So you've mentioned that the U.S. has been pushing for an alliance between Arab states and Israel to contain the threat of Iran. And of course, this is nothing new. The U.S. has been advocating for the formation of an air and missile defense alliance between the Arab states and Israel for many, many years. But do you think the new agreement that's been brokered by the Chinese could possibly change the United States policy towards the Middle East? And what is, in your opinion, the appropriate response from the United States? The United States, I, I think at some level, should welcome this deal, even though it doesn't like the way it was portrayed. And as the saying in Washington goes, they didn't like the optics because this, this agreement reduces tensions in the Middle East, makes war less likely, makes the possibility of tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia increasing the price of oil at a time when U.S. in the United States inflation in Europe, recession, etc. are a threat. So some of these things are no longer a threat to U.S. economy. U.S. can focus on China and on Ukraine. So to that extent, it's good. Now, I mean, the United States would have to rethink its Middle East policy. The United States cannot assume that it can just from far away support an Israeli-Arab alliance to contain Iran. Uh, the, the Arab part of it is no longer on board with that policy. That doesn't mean that the challenge of Iran for the United States is gone. The nuclear deal is still not signed. Israel is still very nervous about Iran. All of these things are true. But the United States has to think of its policy in the Middle East completely differently. Isolating Iran in the Middle East is not one that the Arabs are on board with. So it requires going back to the planning board. How do you see the restoration of Saudi Arabia's ties with Iran affecting the country's potential normalization of relations with Israel? Could China play a role in mediating between them as well? The Guardian just published yesterday that China offered to mediate between Israel and Palestine, 
Could China continue to play this mediator role in the region? And how realistic is it, in your opinion? I think when it comes to Israel, it's not. I mean, first of all, Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, do not need China. They both have relations with America. America could not play a mediator between Saudi Arabia mm -hmm. and Iran. But it has been, actually, since uh, uh, the Trump administration, when Jared Kushner was doing this, uh, even under Biden, it is actually acting as a mediator between Saudi Arabia and, and Israel. And, and actually, Saudi Arabia and Israel are talking. They were talking even before President Trump was there. They do have security cooperation. The real issue is that Israel wants Saudi Arabia to formally recognize it, as UAE has, as Bahrain has, and open an embassy, and Israel to open an embassy in Riyadh. So it's only the last piece that has to happen. So you would say, I would think that uh, the normalization with Iran could help uh, Saudi Arabia to recognize Israel, because I do think that Saudi Arabia has a broader uh, constituency in the Muslim world. I mean, after all, Saudi Arabia is the, as the exp Arabic expression goes, is the Khadim al-Haramain, the protector of the two holy sites. It's where Muslims around the world look to it. It does see its, itself as a leader of the, of the Islamic world. And it would not look good if it recognized Israel, but didn't have relations with Iran. But let me put it the other way around. Now that it has relations with Iran, it's easier. There's more of a political cover for it around the Muslim world to recognize Israel. The obstacle is not Iran. The obstacle right now is the Palestinian issue and the nature of the current Israeli government. It was always much easier to talk about Saudi recognition of, of Israel when the Palestinian issue was completely dormant, like it was not in the mind of the Arab street that the Israelis or Americans or Saudis or Emiratis could say that the issue is dead. The issue is not a political problem. So when Emirates signed the Abraham Accords with Israel, the Palestinian issue was just nowhere to be seen. But then afterwards, it, it resurfaced. First, it resurfaced in the form of those clashes and riots within Israel, including even Israeli Arabs. Then uh, it has only expanded. Now you have a, a right-wing government in Israel that wants to increase settlements, that wants to take over the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, it's, it's following some very difficult policies. And the Palestinians look to be on the verge of a... Of, a, of another uh, intifada. And the sort of imagery pictures that come out of Israel just suggest that this is not the right time. I mean, the price for Saudi Arabia all of a sudden in the middle of this kind of a crisis to recognize Israel uh, is, is not there. So one of the things that has changed is that when we used to talk much more during the Trump era of Arab-Israeli alliance against Iran, and the Arabs recognizing Israel, Abraham Accords, and then Saudis maybe recognizing Israel. We were dealing with the fact that this relationship would be built on the back of the idea that the only issue in the Middle East is Iran, that there is no more Palestinian issue. Now we have a situation in which the Palestinian issue is making a comeback, maybe not as big as it was a decade ago, but it's coming back. And so even in the Arab world, it's not as easy to look at the picture black and white as, as we did, let's say, th three years ago, four years ago. That there is Iran and then there is the Arab world and there is no other issue. So now there is that issue. 
So I would think it's difficult. And, you know, now that Israel has normalized with Iran, essentially the message is that it clearly does not see Iran as big a threat as it did two, three years ago, because now it's going to have an embassy there. But the Palestinian issue is becoming a bigger issue than it was two, three years ago. So we're in a different Middle East. The Israeli-Arab issue, the recognition issue is no longer about Iran. It has a lot to do with the policies of the current Israeli government. Uh, you know, what happens in Al-Aqsa Mosque, what happens in Jerusalem, on the West Bank, etc. Just like China, Russia is growing its influence in the Middle East, making the most of the space left behind in absent United States. Recently, some articles have surfaced regarding the United Arab Emirates' relationship with Russia. Specifically, the Middle East I published an article arguing that the UAE are engaging in strategic partnership based on mutual interests and pragmatic considerations, particularly in the field of defense and security. Also, the recent leaked U.S. intelligence documents highlight how military relationships between Russia and U.S. allies in the Middle East have sown discord with Washington. One document disclosed plans for a Russian defense firm to build a regional maintenance center in the United Arab Emirates for Russian missiles and combat vehicles that the Persian Gulf country had bought. Another document reported by the Washington Post says Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi ordered subordinates to covertly produce as many as 40,000 rockets as well as other weapons for shipment to Russia. How significant are the recent U.S. intel leaks about Russia's military presence in the Middle East? And what do they reveal about Russia's growing influence in the region? Well, I mean, the leaks bring to the fore, uh, you know, information that we didn't know until now. But, but some of it is perhaps affected. I mean, Russia began to become a major player in the Middle East when it entered Syria. It's important to the oil markets. But, but the reality is that, uh, you know, the, the unipolar world that, that once upon a time the Arabs looked to, a world that, that, you know, after 1991, U.S. invasion of Iraq, until at least the Trump period, that a world in which the United States dominated is no longer there. We, we're now seeing other great powers, uh, Russia and China, with their own spheres of influence, which are going to be there. So it's not just about the United States. I mean, these countries are, are looking at a world situation in which they are trying to balance their interests. They believe they cannot afford to have no relations with Russia. In fact, they need to cultivate relations with Russia because they need to recognize that Russia and China are important global players, and they cannot ignore that. There's also other motivations. I mean, Russia is being very important to Iran. It's dangerous for UAE and Saudi Arabia to let Iran dominate Russia. So kinds of agreements that you mentioned gives UAE or Saudi Arabia a certain degree of influence in Moscow, which they can use uh, in order to limit, for instance, how much weaponry the Russians may sell Iran, whether they give Iran advanced missiles or give Iran aircraft or give Iran other sorts of technology. In the case of Egypt, similarly, you know, uh, Egyptians have varieties of other, uh, other interests. For instance, uh, you know, Egypt's economy has been battered by uh, the war in Ukraine. The Egyptian economy is in need of energy, uh, Russian oil, for instance, or is in need of Russian grain. This is not about the United States. Yeah. This is about, um, you know, recognizing that the world has more than one great power and that, you, that they need to have relationships with that great power as well. 
Of course, the fact that they trust the United States less than they did before, that they're not confident that the United States is committed to them, only encourages this. But they really are, are reacting to a reality that is global, not Middle Eastern. It's not that just that Russia has arrived in the Middle East and they are dealing with it. It's that Middle Eastern countries are understanding that they're now in a world of a number of great powers who are competing with one another and that they need to have relations with all of them. Now, with China, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, they all have, have, have had deep economic relationships for some time. I mean, UAE has positioned itself to be the hub between East and West, uh, you know, air travel hub, but also that maritime transportation hub, you know, the port of Jabal Ali or others are sitting in between Africa and, and, and Asia. And you can't play that role without having also serious relationship with the other side of it. Cannot, uh, your relation cannot be just with America. Now, we're, we're, we're sort of um, becoming alert to some of these relationships much more because of, our, the, of the fact that over the past year uh, or two, three years, our relationship with China and Russia have, has got so much worse. So we're paying more attention to these trends, but these trends are not necessarily new. Of course, having relations with these countries, Russia and China, is one thing, but helping them evade sanctions is a different story. The UAE has been accused of helping Russia evade sanctions imposed by the US and other Western countries. Alleged cooperation has caused concerns among officials about the effectiveness of sanctions in achieving their intended goals. What specific actions, in your opinion, has the UAE taken to help Russia evade sanctions? And how have these actions impacted the efficacy of the sanctions regime against Russia? I mean, it's easy to blame when sanctions don't, don't work on UAE or another country. But in reality, countries always find a way to go around sanctions. I mean, UAE, and particularly Dubai, is now home to a lot of Russian oligarchs whose properties were confiscated in Europe or they moved their properties to uh, to Dubai. A lot of them are there. So there's money that comes in and goes. Again, Dubai is an entrepot location from which finances and goods come and go. I mean, for a very long time, the U.S. blamed UAE for Iran's access to global markets. And even though UAE as a whole was not on good terms with Iran, still trade came and went through through the Gulf. Now, some of this is very simple. It's about money. There are businessmen, there are traders who are, are in the business, not just necessarily as illicit business, but they're in, they're in the business of selling oil, selling grain, import, export, etc. And Russia or Iran provide very, very large markets. So they're responding to supply and demand, if you would. Uh, and to some extent, again, it goes to the fact that UAE sees importance in maintaining certain degree of relationship with Russia. What impact do you think the UAE's role in helping Russia evade sanctions will have on its relationship with the US and other Western powers? And what steps could be taken to address this issue? I, I don't think it will have a detrimental effect. I mean, we're going to complain about it. The media is going to complain about it. But we don't see at, at any sign so far of the Biden administration having made this an issue at all. 
at some level, the United States also has other equities with, with UAE. I mean, it's now a major partner in the Abraham Accords, which the U.S. cares about. It is a major energy producer. It's a country that is a buyer of American products, and it's important to the American economy. So fundamentally, I don't think the level of trade with UAE is such that it's going to make or break Russia. But it again goes to the fact that the United States expectation that the world would be black and white, us and them, that we can say that, you know, we're going to define who the enemy is and then everybody on our side is going to be on our side is not realistic. I give you another example, close U.S. ally and a European country, which is very much part of Europe's confrontations with Russia, the president of France went to China and in China, he broke with U.S. position. He said Taiwan is not Europe's problem. And he said that Europe should not be following America's every agenda item that America has. US, uh, Europe should not blindly follow it. And uh, while he was there, he promised that Airbus would be building a major manufacturing facility in China. So that logic that President Macron put on the table, which many countries in Europe and the United States didn't like, was largely the same one that UAE or Saudi Arabia are following. In other words, yes, we're your friend, we're your customer, we are your ally, but this is not a world of black and white in which you decide what's good and bad and you expect us to 100% follow you. We have our own interests and we're going we're gonna to follow those as well. And for my final question, and I believe you already answered this, Professor, um, but I'll ask again as a reminder to our listeners and just to wrap this whole episode, how does the UAE's growing relationship with China and Russia fit into the broader trend of countries in the Middle East and Gulf region shifting away from Western leadership? And what implications does this have for the balance of power in the region? Well, I mean, if these countries, which are the closest allies of the United States, want to assert independence from U.S. policy, then the other Arab countries, let's say, are even farther, already farther away from the West. But, you know, the alienation is not just security related. This is a region that is ailing economically. It's being hurt. It's not supportive of the war in Ukraine. There's a perception in the Middle East, much like the rest of the global South, that this is not their war, but they're paying a disproportionate cost for a war that is European, that America and Europe priority is just to make Europe whole to supply Ukraine. And as a result, there's a lot of, um, if you would, resentment or a lack of trust in American policy. So I, I think we're going to be, United States has to get used to a world in which most of its allies are going to be in a gray area, that they may support the United States on one issue, but not on another issue. And it requires a lot more effort by the United States to make sure that their positions are aligned with the U.S. The U.S. can demand compliance, yes. It has to consult. It has to be able to give a lot more. It cannot just expect or demand. Uh, And it has to recognize that other countries ultimately may have um, national interests that may be at variance with the U.S. policy. We're even, United States even seeing it in Europe. There's a huge difference between Poland and France on the Ukraine war. And these are two European countries, let alone expecting UAE or Egypt to, uh, you know, follow the United States lead on Ukraine as if they're a member of NATO when they're not getting any of those benefits. 
So we've come to the end of our episode. Thank you, Professor, for joining me and for coming on to talk to us about this. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. For all of our listeners out there, Small World Big Problems is a student-led production sponsored by the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies located here in Washington, D.C. Small World Big Problems can be found on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to become part of the podcast, suggest a guest for the show, or just send us your feedback, please email us at SAIS, that is S-A-I-S, strategypodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back soon with new episodes.